0: This episode of the American Farrier's Journal podcast is brought to you by k Welcome to the American Farrier's Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Every horseshoe has at least a few good stories. There's crazy horses, crazier clients, and everything in between. The older the farrier, then the stories get bigger and can take on a life of their own. Even though every farrier listening to this episode has a story worth sharing, how many have written these down and published a book. One of these people is Ray Legal. Ray has practiced in Iowa and Texas going back decades, and it isn't just that he wrote a book, but Ray also has great insight on this trade of farriery. His passion is now educating his fellow farriers in his area in Iowa. In this week's episode, Ray tells us about his career and his book. I hope you enjoy it. I got back
1: from Vietnam in fall of 68, went back and got a factory job. And I also worked 8 to 2.30 at a gas station and worked nights at the factory. And I did that for two years. And then the third year, I went to a tech school for auto mechanics days and worked factory nights. I graduated after a year. And I got laid off for the seventh time in three and a half years from the factory. So I jumped, jumped ship and drove to Sunland Park, New Mexico. They had a quarter horse thoroughbred winter meet. I got a job as a groom for the Joe Welch stable. Actually, Joe Welch was Raquel Welch's first father-in-law. Really nice guy. Anyways, every afternoon I had to hold horses for the horseshoers. They had three different horseshoers. And uh, I don't know, it just fascinated me really. And uh, I looked there... The whole winter, and then I went back home in the spring. By then, my dad had bought two running quarter horses on a pony horse. Going to do a little push track racing. So, anyways, I had to get them shod. There's two pairs, one 40 miles each way from me, and I got a hold of the one. And uh, he needed six head to come that far. So I had three. Anyways, he was an hour late getting there. That didn't impress me too much. He shot my three, and then we went through town, and I bought him lunch at the tavern, and he had a few drinks. And then we shot the other three. And uh, anyways, I lost three shoes, one off each horse within five days. So I called the gentleman up and told him, he said, well, you have to haul them to my place. I said, well, I don't have a trailer. He said, well, you're just SOL, boy. So anyways, long story short, uh, an old cowboy, good friend, a uh, Doyle Johnson, an awesome horseman, uh, with his help, he said, we can get these nailed back on and he got me started. Anyways, uh, I started doing my own and then started doing The Neighbors and then I realized I really should find out (laughs) what I'm really doing here. So I started going, well, I got the uh, American Ferrier's Journal, uh, Henry Heimer was published in that. Then I realized there's lots of horseshoers out there. And anyways, I started going to cl- clinics and seminars all over the United States, just learning, learning, learning. I've been at it 44 years and I'm still learning. But uh, that's basically how I got going, uh, shoeing. It just, uh, I never advertised, uh, just word of mouth, took probably three years before I had a full book. But uh, i guarantee my shoes for six weeks. if. They lost one, I'd put it back on within 24 hours at no charge. If I made a mistake, I didn't charge. So that's kind of how I got
0: going. So would you charge if uh, it was the client's fault?
1: No, no,
0: I just uh, I just thought it was good business. That and uh,
1: picking up my nail tips, I never picked them all up that impressed a few people. You had to do other things other than shoot horse to impress people in the early years. Yeah,
0: that's kind of an interesting thing. You, you... Was that something you just picked up on or, or brought from other work of of recognizing that customer service level, of putting the shoe back on and making sure all your nails are, are off the ground?
1: It's it's the way I would like, like it myself. I tried to treat people like I like to be treated, so I just thought that's just good business. I uh, Well, for that guy that came and shot my three, I mean, he had nails all over the yard. I mean, he could have cared less. I mean, whole nails. He'd pull them out and just let them on the ground. And I thought, well, this isn't good. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I forget what year I moved to town for my acreage. I had one milk can full of nails and tips, and another milk can three-fourths full of nails and tips. Because every day I clean out my box at the end of the day, so <laughs> I had a lot of nail tips over the years.
0: Thank God for that that first farrier and what a what a poor job he had, and not willing to come back out or stand by his work because it seems like it made a huge impression on you.
1: Yes, I did. Uh, uh, customer service, you can't beat it. Uh,
0: I tell these
1: young shrews, I had the first mini-computer. I had a recipe card box, and I kept uh, anything that I did that wasn't normal. I kept records on the horse, and also their names. Really impressed people that was back before answering machines or anything. When you'd, they'd call, you'd call back and say, uh, oh, how's Violet doing? You know, Or I did some corrective work. I'd call them back in three, four days, and and check and see how the horse was going just customer service you can't beat it that really worked good for me
0: yeah do you think that was like a thing that really helped separate you especially in those early years from from maybe your competition
1: yes exactly uh there was one other friend around uh nicest guy in the world everybody liked him but he wouldn't show up uh, one one lady uh called him, he said, hey, I was just heading to your place, and she'd called him like 10 times, and he never did show up. <laughs> so, when I followed him, and uh, people couldn't believe I was on time, that really impressed him. In the last 44 years, I was late six times, that I remember, and uh, three of those weren't my fault. But uh, anyways, it's I tried to be punctual, yeah. I think it's very important.
0: So you started out in Iowa. How many years did you practice in Iowa before you, you tried down in Texas? Let me see. started.
1: See, 1985. I bulged two discs. I, I trimmed 17 draft horses the morning before, and then I went down the next day with a bulged disc. But I learned a lot about my back since it wasn't those 17 draft horses I trimmed that forenoon that put me down. It was working stupid for 38 years. I've always worked hard and just lifted too heavy. So anyways, uh, uh, I was down for 33 days. And, you know, when you're at 224 customers on the book, some once a year, some every six weeks, that not one person in 33 days that I was down called and asked how I was going to feed my family or make payments. Was, oh my gosh, I got a first show. Who's going to shoot my horse? So I realized that I was just something they need, you know. And uh, So anyways, 1985, I flew to Texas every six weeks and shot raining horses for Craig Johnson. He originated up here not too far from me. His dad still is up here. While I was down there, Carol Rose uh, ran into her. She told me if I ever moved down there, she'd be interested in using me. So anyways, I got going again in 86, running on some pain pills that you shouldn't take. Just to make ends meet, and I knew I couldn't keep this up. So, come January, I made out a list of the 225 customers and what carrier might be compatible with them. And I moved to Texas, and because uh, it's a year-round down there. Here in Iowa, you know, you gotta make the biggest share of your money through the summer months. Down there, it's a it's a business. It's not a hobby. They go year-round. They leave for a first year on Christmas Day. Even so, anyways, I. Had, Packed my van up, moved down there, rent a little trailer house. Landed Carol Rose's account. That was She had three farriers. She let them all go. Uh, there's 275 horses there. Then I got two cutting horse barns, uh, 50 horses in each of those. Anyways, uh, the wife finally moved down, and we rented a house, and it was great. <laughs> no phone calls. Uh, people never once... Um, uh, accused me of them getting beat in a horse show because of the way I shot the horse. <laughs> and it was it was super, but my back kept getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, I got down to one horse a day and uh, time to give it up. So anyways, uh, got Grant Moon into Curl Roses. He's down the road about 60 miles. Got to hang out with him a couple of days. Just a super person, awesome shooter, sure. just uh, down to earth, sort of guy, just just great guy. Just can't say anything bad about the guy. So anyways, uh, we moved back to Iowa and that's a long story how I got my back fixed and got back shooting again.
0: Yeah, go ahead and tell us. It's an interesting story.
1: Okay, well, I, I tried everything and nothing worked. Anyways, uh, two miles from my house was, a holistic healer, which I'd never heard of. My mother-in-law ended up going there with a bad back and, uh, he, This guy, with, he had hot hands, and uh, it's the last story in my book. Anyways, uh, he got rid of all of her pain, and she got all the feeling back in her toes. So her, her husband came out and told me about this guy, so I made an appointment. And I'd already been to Mayo Clinic. Uh, when I came back, I went up there to see if they could do anything, and I got spurs the full length of my vertebrae on the one side, and they said I'd get over and couldn't get up. They said, your muscles are shot. You know, you're just going to have to adjust your lifestyle and learn to live with it. Kind of hard to do because I'm always been a workaholic. Anyways, I got a job as a, a mechanic just to buy groceries, basically. And then, then the mother-in-law came out and told me about this guy. And I went and seen him. And well, I just walked in and said, I got a bad back. He said, yeah, I can tell. So I lay down on the bed. He ran his hands down my back. And he got to the... Down to my tailbone. He looked me in the face and he said, Boy, he said, you got a whole row of spurs on the right side of your vertebrae all the way down. He said, You need to be taking cod liver oil every day or they're going to put you down someday. And, anyways, <laughs> he did figure that out with his hands. But about that time, he went off into his little kitchen and started coughing and clearing his throat and spit into a coffee can. I thought, What a gross old guy he is. But I found out later, if you'd been x rayed within 30 days, he got that poison in his system. He had to cough it out. Anyways, he <laughs> my back got hot, and his hands went over it. What he did was, he explained, he gathers up your aura and puts it into the place that's that's bad. 20 minutes later, I got off the table. No pain, loose as a goose. I said, gee whiz, uh, when do I come back? He said, maybe never. Maybe next week. Play it later. And I made a donation. He couldn't charge. And I went home and started playing ball with my daughter and started shoeing horses again. Plus, I was, got a full-time mechanic's job till things wound up again. And anyways, uh, things were great. Whenever my back would go bad, I'd go see a half vitamin, I'd be good as new again. Then half passed away, yeah. and so I gave up my day job and went back shoeing full time. And um, I don't know, I made it a few years, but I just kept getting worse and worse and worse. That's where I'm at now. I'm down to 70 years old, uh, just doing corrective work and helping young shoeers as far as the shoeing industry.
0: Were, were you much of a believer in sort of that holistic practice, uh, but not, yeah, not at all?
1: Not at all, no. Uh, well, the mother-in-law didn't lie, so I knew there was something there, but uh, I can tell you stories for an hour, people, that he he's, he's sticks.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was amazing, amazing man. Well, I guess if, so, if you're not a believer, you, you believe in the results, so. Yes, uh-huh, you know uh, when you're telling us the story you had mentioned your book uh you know every every horseshoeer has stories, but uh very Correct. few have put them down in book uh tell us tell us about the the history of of your book
1: okay, I was, everybody, like you said, could write a book uh I was down in Texas, let me see, probably four months before the wife and daughter moved down, so I had this little trailer house and an old typewriter, and with two fingers on each hand. I wrote a whole book. <laughs> anyways, I sat on it for a long time because I'm not a writer. I needed an illustrator. And long story short, I went all over the United States looking for an illustrator because I needed like uh, 59 pictures. It would show the highlight story. So people that weren't horse people could get a better feel for it. Well, I got estimates all the way from $500 to 1000 <laughs> per picture in that network. So anyways, I was about ready to give it up. And my good buddy, Roger Alston said, I got a customer that can draw beautifully. And I said, well, let's check it out. And her name is Cindy Lentz. And, uh, she took off and, uh, knocked out all 58 pictures. Plus she's working a full-time job in six months. And so then I went through four editors. Um, uh, I got pretty expensive too, but, uh, anyways, I finally got the book together, and. Uh, didn't have too many uh, errors in it. Uh, I've since did a reproduction. I ran out of books. I did it, and then I fixed a few errors that I had in the book. Mm -hmm. So that's that's it. Everybody could write a book. Uh, I've written another 20 stories since, but I'm not going to do another book. I just slip them into our association, Iowa Association's uh, newsletter, one at a time, for the boys to enjoy. Do you you have a favorite story from your book? Oh... (laughs) Um, probably the one that's not in the book, but I've recently wrote a young farrier had me come down to his place and I, I, I thought he wanted me to critique his work and stuff, but I drove three hours south and come to find out he had a whole day booked of shoeing and trimming. We hammered away and, uh, he maybe be asking me one or two questions, but we ended up at a place of 10 horses tied to 10 trees and two holders. So anyways, we started trimming, and I noticed this little mare, this guy was strong as an ox. She would spit him right out the back. He'd get up red-faced, get under, she'd just throw him right out of there. About the third time, I see she's about to get a whooping. I said, hey, Joe, let me see if I can't get along with her a little better. Your back's killing you. I said, "Ah, let me see. Go do another horse. So anyways, he went to do another horse. I got my horse done, and I walked up. The guy was holding the horse and cupped the little mare's ear and whispered a line in Vietnamese in her ear and uh, picked up her back foot, trimmed it, picked up the other back foot, trimmed it, and she never moved. So that was the last horse. I was loading up, and uh, I heard this joke over this guy and he said, what did he say to that horse? I mean, it was an earshot. The guy says, I don't know. It was some foreign language I've never heard. Anyways, if he came over and asked me what I said to the horse, I would have told him, but he didn't. Six months later, we're at a Iowa Professional Farriers Association clinic or something, and his wife come up to me, and she said, Ray, Joe's been losing sleep for six months. What did you tell that horse? I said, well, what I told the horse was a bunch of BS in Vietnamese, but I said, the mare is really arthritic in the hawks, and he is lifting her up too high to make himself comfortable, and that's why she was spitting him out. I said, I just lowered myself down. Of course, I'm closer to the ground anyway. And trimmed her, where she was comfortable, and she never moved. He said, "Oh my gosh!" She said, I "You had some magic words." <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty funny, I thought. <laughs> yeah.
0: You mentioned that in uh, your work with younger farriers and and getting out doing corrective work. What what are some of the the lessons you've passed along, or maybe a couple of them that that have really helped other farriers that you, you you've done in recent years?
1: Um, in 1983, uh, the Houston at the American Furs Association convention, and Bernie Chapman got up on stage and told about heart bars for laminitis and founder. Like he said later, I opened up a can of worms. But anyways, I came back to Iowa and started doing that, and I would uh, call Bernie and, and send him X-rays. I always paid him. The other guys said, "Oh, you don't have to pay him," but I always did. But I learned a lot about how to use heart bar shoes. So. That's the biggest thing I'd say i pass on, but not too many guys like to do that because it takes too much time, but I've kind of synchronized the way to have the shoes made up ahead of time on uh, different lengths. And then the frog plates, I have them made up, and then I get the one that fits perfect and then jump welded it in the shoe. But anyways, basically that, and teaching them how to get the foot back under the horse. And roll toes, uh, way back when, we had a cow vet and he knew very little about horses' feet, and I knew less. And one day I asked him, Dr. Waller, I said, uh, You know, these horses are going off a little bit. Is there something I could, should be doing? He said, Well, I don't really know. But if you put on a size bigger shoe for more support and a roll toe for an easier breakover, that's got to help. Wow, it's like putting on your seatbelt after you had the wreck. So for the last 40, I guess, 40 some years, I've rolled the toes on the front shoes of every 99.9% of the horses I've shod to help them get over easier. Because, like, if a horse goes in a navicular, what's the vet recommend? A size bigger shoe and an easier breakover. So, it's my theory is for a horse to take a new shoe and wear all that metal away till it's comfortable for him After a period of years, it breaks down the suspensory problems like your navicular area, which takes in a lot of different things, of course. But anyways, uh, boy, that worked good for me, and uh, I'm a big believer in it.
0: What do you think is the uh, most common mistake that you see people make in the misapplication of heart bars?
1: Basically, you need to see the frog all the way around your frog plate, either putting them on too long, too wide, too much pressure, not enough pressure. Uh, there are just so many things that enters into it. Down here, I don't see. I'm the only one doing heart bars, I guess, for many, many miles. So now we got Doug Russo from Michigan and down Iowa State. Boy, he is great. He runs a little school and uh, he's really good with heart bars, also. You
0: got kind of a unique thing going on in Iowa. Maybe not unique, but uh, a really good community. Uh, You got Doug there, Iowa State, and you got a very active association. Can you can you tell us a little bit about? The horses, and kind of the horseshoe culture there there in Iowa?
1: Yeah, there's a nukes mixture of everything. Uh, there's not any uh, walking horses in the area, per se, other than guys that just put a heavy shoe on and go to dog trials. I mean, uh, the big lick horses aren't around. But uh, other than that, we've got everything else in Iowa, so you've got to be very versatile. I don't know anybody that specializes in one breed, uh, just one guy, I guess. Uh, those saddlebreds you just got to travel like three different states but uh, basically you got to be very versatile all the way to draft horses the miniatures just everything so you you really got to be uh, versatile uh, one time Arabians were a big deal I had like two Arabian barns 80 horses in each one but that pretty well dried up too uh, but I didn't specialize in Arabians but that was a big deal back a long time ago <laughs> So you just got to be versatile, you can't believe what people come up with sometimes.
0: Yeah, you talked about going to Texas where, especially with the Rainers, it's, it's very much more of a business than, than uh, a leisure activity. Has Iowa changed over the years where, where you see more of that that uh, seriousness, that, that business seriousness among the clients?
1: Uh, no, um, back 20 years ago, they had a saddle club called Niska. Northeast Iowa Saddle Club Association. there's like 10 different associations that belong to it. And it was a big deal back then. I mean, uh, everybody's going for a high point at the end of the year and stuff, but that dried up too. And as far as rainers, there are far and few between around here. Young sure called me two weeks ago and had a customer that bought two raining horses uh, out of Texas and he said, I've never shot a rainer. I said, well, I'll go over and help you. So it's not a big deal, it's just happen to know a few different things when you're shoeing a reining horse. So anyways, uh, other than that, uh, there's just nothing that stands out in, in this area, that's for sure.
0: Do you find anything in particular helpful or that you've learned over the years about keeping uh, reining horses competing? Yes.
1: Yes, I've learned a lot. Back when I first started shoeing, they had won a 45-degree angle behind and a four-inch four toe, long and low and that just blows the hawks apart so anyways uh yeah i uh got along just great uh shooting them in balance rolled toes in the front and roll off each side of the toe quarter for the turnaround and not to overshoe them behind uh, there's a shoe in texas uh, his claim to pain is when he gets done they slide he put so much iron on that they would Pluck their front shoes off, but they would slide. But there's more than the slide for a reining horse. They got to run their pattern. They got to slow, low, fast, low, spin. And then, and then slide is the big deal, you know. But, uh, anyways, uh, there's four different kinds of sliders, uh, horses. And there's the kind that slides perfect leaven, fine. When you slide them, they get perfect leaven. The next horse will go out a little bit and then go do the leaven he'll get you a check but it's the one that'll naturally do the leaven without jacking the shoes around that's going to get you the big money and then the other two kinds of sliders they never make anything so
0: you know so you've you moved to Texas and that that's a different type of practice you, you came back to Iowa and you, you talked about it earlier where where clients very mm-hmm. much view the farrier as a commodity is as, as soon as you're you know for many of them as soon as you're Unable to do the work, they'll find someone else. They're not worried about your retirement or your health. So, so you've had to come back to areas and, uh, or return to Iowa or go to other places and build a book. And, and as you said, you've done it somewhat quickly. Uh, what's the trick for developing a practice and, and finding clients?
1: Word of mouth, it'll make you break you. I just uh, treat every person, every customer like they're your favorite one be concerned about the horse and I mean sincerely, I mean uh you drive in the yard, you might mention, wow, you sure have some pretty flowers around the house. Calling the horse by name, don't beat the horse, uh just uh things like that. And people like that. Uh they like it that you care, really truly care about your horse and you should. Or you shouldn't be a shooter. <laughs> so that's what I run on pretty much, uh, word of mouth. I never did advertise. You uh
0: Talked earlier, you know, about your back and, and the draft horses, and, and we talked about our, our mutual friend, uh, Red Wrenchin, who, who sadly has passed away a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. you had mentioned uh, one of the important lessons he, he you know, he tried to okay. uh, drill into you was uh, avoiding those, you know, doing as much by yourself and, and getting helpers. Can you yep. talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I read, I, I used to, before we had Ohio Association, I would go up to Wisconsin all the time, and uh, I read, uh, just a super person, and I, I was talking one time, and I mean, I wasn't a fast shoeer 20 minutes for a trim, an hour for a shoe job, but I was averaging 90 horses a week, and uh, we was talking one night, and he said, you're, you're never going to be able to shoe your whole life unless you get a helper, you got to take a break and stand up. He said, you're back, he said, I don't care how strong you are, you're back, just can't take that, stooping over and going all day long. But at the time I was <laughs> we didn't have foot jacks and all that stuff then. I thought I was pretty strong. I'd shoot draft horses right on my lap, bring the foot ahead and them right on my lap, you know. But uh anyways, Red was right. Uh I went down. My problem was is I couldn't find anybody that I could get to work for me that was as fussy. And so one guy kinda panned out, but, uh, that ended up in a wreck to, uh, he ended up ripping me off for $1,300. But anyways, uh, so basically I worked alone and red was right. So you can't do that. <laughs> so I read, well, with the foot jacks now and the foot stands, that really helps a lot. I mean, you could probably work alone and utilize, utilize those and get a lot farther than I did. Yeah, I've got records of over head, a hundred thousand head, have been under, but, uh, you only got so many in your back. You can either do them all at once or spread them out over a lifetime, they say.
0: Yeah, and you were sort of an early adapter of using the computer and records. You know, what, what do you recommend as, as far as keeping a record on a horse or what you document? What, what would you recommend writing down?
1: Well, like any time I made corrective shoes, I'd write down the length of the bar stock I cut. So if they happen to lose a shoe, I could just whip one up uh, the width of the foot the angles there's any particular problem the customers having just good uh, when you go back to redo the horse uh, look over your notes what you did and then there's sometimes I'd write down what I should have did but didn't do now it wasn't uh, just a you know a different idea I have I always watch horses walk to me and walk away and I several times over the years I've brought them back and taken a shoe off and redone redone a foot or two Um, I just uh Way I am, but if you keep records, uh, it just keeps you on top of everything. And when you pull in, you know what you got, and you know what you need, and, and get her done.
0: Yeah. When you uh, would go back uh, for the next appointment, what do you do to analyze your work or see how how your work is uh, held up over the those few weeks?
1: You know, horseshoeing contests. Uh, they say you really shouldn't judge the horse that day. You should judge how the shoes look in six weeks. <laughs> so. I always strive for perfection, balance, and, you know, just everything. I just try to be perfectionist, and I can't say I hardly ever walked away from a horse and said, well, I did everything perfect, but I try to do everything perfect. And uh, that's about all I can tell you. Uh, Just uh, if the customer has a problem, they tell you about it. You make your adjustments when you go back. But other than that, I just like to see all the nails tight and the shoe not overgrowing the foot and the horse moving sound
0: yeah I think we we talked about that before is the idea of uh the unattainable perfect job uh you know how how do you draw the line between doing the best possible work and and not maybe the right word to say is overdoing it or or trying to pursue that perfection you know overly focusing on that that one horse
1: well um first, you know one guy told me now if you want a good job, he said you need to get me between the fourth and eighth horse he said before that I'm pretty sloppy after that I'm really sloppy (laughs) and my program has always been that last horse of the day should be as good as the first horse of the day or you shouldn't be doing it so I don't know if that quite answers your question Jeremy but uh, um, that's just the way I always did it
0: Yeah. yeah you talked about your back do you do you have any other regrets looking back over your career
1: I got to be too good of friends with my customers, and comes time to raise your prices, that's hard. I look back; if I'd charged a buck a horse more, I'd have an extra hundred thousand a day. But uh, I don't know. I just uh, I don't know. I, I was a real businessman. <laughs> I tell these young guys, I, I hammer on uh, them: keep it professional. Don't get to be good friends. It's hard to raise your prices on friends. So I guess that would be the the biggest thing is I should have charged more for what I did, like heart bars. I don't know how many of them I did early on. If it didn't help the horse or something happened, I didn't charge them. I've shot a lot of horses for nothing. I used to buy some horses for experimental reasons, uh, just try different things. But, uh, no, uh, just uh, probably work smarter and try to find somebody to help out, like Red said. But, yeah, that would probably kept me going. I might be hammering hard yet today. So
0: yeah. you uh... – yeah you work with a lot of these younger farriers still today. and Do you think that that deficiency in operating the business of, of being a horseshoer is still a, still a major problem you see?
1: No, I think the younger generation uh, got things together. A lot of them got a laptop in the back of their shoe and truck or trailer, and uh, they're keeping it very professional. Uh, I'm really impressed. The ones I see in our association, uh, they're, they, they stepped it up. Uh, They're taking care of business, and then they're also, I hammered out them, gods first, then family, then there's always horses to shoe. But uh, I see a lot of guys taking vacations in the middle of the summer, and that's great because when you get to this point in life, there's not a lot left. So that's very important to balance your shoeing career with your family and and everything else. Uh, My situation way back when, I was paying 12% interest on my acreage. Uh, my sister was going through a divorce. I was supporting her and her two girls and her lawyers. <laughs> I kind of just needed the money. You know, It wasn't greed or anything that drove me. It was uh, a lot of bills. So, But I think the boys nowadays in our association, they, they got it figured out. By golly, they, they uh, take time off. Uh, they don't shoot till midnight. A lot of them work eight to five. That's just being smart. So uh, no, I think the young guys are doing great.
0: So as I mentioned in the beginning, and as Ray discussed during the interview, he wrote the book Tales of a Horseshoer. This is a collection of some funny, some serious stories from his decades as a shoer. If you're interested in this book, you can find it at hoofprints.com by searching under Ray Legal or Tales of a Horseshoer. So to give you a taste of it, we're presenting a chapter. And if you have kids listening or if you're easily offended, you might wanna skip it or save it for later. This chapter is titled Hooker on Horseback, and stick around for the end. It's a quick listen, but Ray will give us a quick follow-up to it because this chapter was written 15 years ago. A Hooker on Horseback by Ray Legal. I may be the only farrier during the 20th century in the United States, to have shot horses for a married hooker, who actually rode her horse out to meet her customers. She would ride her horse out at night using only a two cell flashlight to see with. She would meet a customer at a prearranged site in the country within five miles of her place. She'd tie her horse to a fence post in the ditch and do her thing in the customer's vehicle. And what does she charge? $20. During the daytime, her customers came to her house while her husband was at work, and the old horse got a rest. How do I know so much about her operation? Well, for one thing, it is no secret around town. The second thing is she lives very close to one of my relatives, who has seen her rendezvous several times. Third, she told me so. I can remember the first time I returned her shoeing call. It was about 10 p.m., and her husband answered the phone. I told him who I was and that I was returning his wife's phone call. He said she was not there right now as she had just left on her horse. I told him I would be up until 11 p.m. if she wanted to call back. He said he did not expect her to get home from riding until 1 or 2 in the morning. That was a little past my bedtime so I said I would call back in the morning. By now a person probably has this picture painted in his mind. Someone built like Bo What's-Her-Name riding along on a beautiful horse, just hauling in the cash. Well, not so fast. Just for the record, she was about half as wide as she was tall. On her behalf, I must add, she was not that tall. What she did to attract customers, I will never know, but I've always wondered. The first three times I went there, the conversation was mostly about the weather and small talk. I got paid cash for the first time, Every time after that, I got a check, and I had to hold on to it from two weeks to a month before depositing it. She would put the date on the check when it was supposed to be good, and it always was. Over the years, I really got an earful. She made it with some real uptown people. I did not let the stories out past my wife because a guy could get shot knowing what I did. And yes, she did ask me to do some trading for shoeing, but I told her I had to have money to keep my business going. Huh, she said. The first stop in the spring she would always ask me if I had raised my prices. I would give her my inflation speech that I gave everybody in the spring and I told her I had to raise my prices to keep going. Then I would ask her if she raised her prices and every year she replied, nope, I still get twenty dollars. Really tried to explain to her it was costing more for her to ride her horse to work so she should charge more to cover her overhead. If she wanted to maintain that same bottom line. It never sank in. The last I heard, she was still getting $20. I got to her place half an hour early one day and caught one of her customers there. I tooted the horn a few times and got set up to shoe. She finally came out with a big grin on her face and caught the horse so I could get to work. She did not have much to say that day. Twice in the hour it took me to shoe that horse, I saw the curtain slide back in the house. I would wave like we were family. Never did find out who that lucky guy was. One day she came leading her horse out with a big grin on her face. She said, how do you like my new boots, Raymond? She was the only customer who ever called me by my full name. Told her they were really sharp and how much they must have cost her. Nope, I got them free, she said. She told me that she went to a Western store and ended up in the back room with the owner. He told her to go pick herself out a pair of boots. Another time when I got there to shoot, she was wearing a western shirt she had gotten free from another store. The price tag was still on it, thirty-eight dollars. The poor guy had screwed himself out of eighteen bucks. When my back went bad and I had to cut down on my shoeing, guess who my wife made me eliminate? That's right, the hooker. Before we go, I'm adding this footnote from Ray about his client. Yeah,
1: poor gal. I mean, and she's still hooking. Uh, you know, she don't live but about 15 miles from here, and she's still out on her horse at night. So she's getting close to my age. So I don't know. <laughs> and hooking is the oldest profession, but if the first hookers had to ride their horse to work, maybe the blacksmiths was the first profession.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode, both the talk with Ray and the book chapter. Again, the book is Tales of a Horseshoer by Ray Legal, and you can find it at hoofprints.com. I'd like to thank Ray for his time in the great chat, and I'd also like to thank Kwell for their sponsorship of this episode. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please post them to this episode page at americanfarriers.com podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening.